Section 12 of Ben the Luggage Boy, or Among the Wharves, by Horatio Alger, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tori Falder. Chapter 23, The Surprise. Ben had certainly met with good luck so far. Even his temporary detention at the station house he regarded as a piece of good luck, since he was paid handsomely for the confinement, while his bed there was considerably more comfortable than he often enjoyed. His adventure with the burglar also brought him in as much as under ordinary circumstances he would have earned in a week. In two days, he was able to lay aside $15 and a half towards his fund. But of course, such lucky adventures could not be expected every day. The bulk of his money must be earned slowly as the reward of persistent labor and industry. But Ben was willing to work now that he had an object before him. He kept up his double business of baggage smasher and vendor of weekly papers. After a while, the latter began to pay him enough to prove quite a help besides filling up his idle moments. Another good result of his new business was that while waiting for customers, he got into the habit of reading the papers he had for sale. Now, Ben had done very little reading since he came to New York, and if called upon to read aloud, would have shown the effects of want of practice in his frequent blunders. But the daily lessons in reading, which he now took, began to remedy this deficiency and give him increased fluency and facility. It also had the effect of making him wish that his education had not been interrupted, so that his cousin Charles might not be so far ahead of him. Ben also gave up smoking, not so much because he considered it injurious, but because cigars cost money and he was economizing in every way possible. He continued to sleep in the room under the wharf, which thus far the occupants had managed to keep from the knowledge of the police. Gradually, the number had increased until from 20 to 30 boys made it a rendezvous nightly. By some means, a stove had been procured and, what was more difficult, got safely down without observation, so that, as the nights grew cooler, the boys managed to make themselves comfortable. Here they talked and told stories and had a good time before going to sleep. One evening, it was proposed by one of the boys that each should tell his own story, for though they met together daily, they knew little of each other beyond this that they were all engaged in some street avocation. Some of the stories told were real, some burlesque. First, Jim Bagley told his story. I ain't got much to tell, boys, he said. My father kept a cigar store on 8th Avenue, and my mother and sister and I lived behind the shop. We got along pretty well till father got run over by a streetcar, and pretty soon after he died. We kept the store along a little while, but we couldn't make it go and pay the rent, so we sold out to a man who paid half down and promised to pay the rest in a year. But before the year was up, he shut up the shop and went off, and we never got the rest of the money. The money we did get did not last long. Mother got some sewing to do, but she couldn't earn much. I took to selling papers, but after a while, I went into the match business, which pays pretty good. I pay Mother $5 a week and sometimes more, so she gets along well. I don't see how you make so much money, Jim, said Phil Cranmer. I've tried it, and I didn't get nothing much out of it. Jim knows how, said one of the boys. He's got enterprise. I go off into the country a good deal, said Jim. There's plenty of match boys in the city. Sometimes I hire another boy to come along and help me. If he's smart, I make money that way too. Last time I went out, I didn't make so much. How was that, Jim? I went up to Albany on the boat. I was doing pretty well up there when all to once they took me up for selling without a license. So I had to pay $10 before they'd let me off. Did you have the money to pay, Jim? Yes, but it cleaned me out, so I didn't have but $2 left, but I traveled off into the country towns and got it back in a week or two. I'm glad they didn't get a hold of Bill. Who was Bill? The fellow that sold for me. I couldn't have paid his fine, too. 
That's about all I have to tell. The main incidents of Jim Bagley's story are true, having been communicated to the writer by Jim himself, a wide-awake boy of 15, who appeared to possess decided business ability and energy. The name only is fictitious. Captain Jinx, called out one of the boys, your turn next. Attention was directed to a tall, overgrown boy of 16, or possibly 17, to whom, for some unknown reason, the name of the famous Captain Jinx had been given. That ain't my name, he said. Oh, bother your name. Go ahead. I ain't got nothing to say. Go ahead and say it. The captain was rather taciturn, but was finally induced to tell his story. My father and mother are dead, he said. I used to live with my sister and her husband. He would get drunk off the money I brought home, and if I didn't bring home as much as he expected, he'd fling a chair at my head. He was a bully brother-in-law, said Jerry. Did it hurt the chair much? If you want to know bad, I'll try it on you, growled the narrator. Good for Captain Jinx, exclaimed two or three of the boys. When did you join the Haas Marines, asked Jerry with apparent interest. Shut up your mouth, said the captain, who did not fancy the joke. Go ahead, Jinx. I would not stand that, so I went off and lived at the lodge till I got in here. That's all. Captain Jinx relapsed into silence, and Tim McQuaid was called upon. He had a pair of sparkling black eyes that looked as if he were not averse to fun. Maybe you don't know, he said, that I'm first cousin to a Marcus. The Marcus of Cork, suggested one of the boys. And sometimes I expect to come in for a lot of money if I don't miss of it. When you do, just treat a feller, will you, said Jerry. Of course I will. I was born in a big castle made of stone and used to go around dressed in velvet and had no end of nice things till one day a feller that had a spite against the Marcus carried me off and brought me to America where I had to go to work and earn my own living. Why don't you write the Marcus and get him to send for you, asked Jerry. Because he can't read, you spalpeen. What would be the use of writing to him? Maybe it's the fault of your writing, Tim. Maybe it is, said Tim. When the Marcus dies, I'm going back, and I'll invite you all to come and pass a week at Castle McQuaid. Bully for you, Tim. Now, Dutchie, tell us your story. Dutchie was a boy of ten, with a full face and rotund figure, whose English, as he had been but two years in the country, was highly flavored with his native dialect. I cannot English spreechin', he said. Never mind, Dutchie. Do as well as you can. It is mine story you want? He is not very long, but I will tell him so goot as I can. Mein vater was a shoemaker, what makes boots. He come from Charmony on the Rhine, mint my mother and five children. He take a little shop and make some money, till one day a house fall on his head mid a brick, and he die. Then I go out into the street and black boots so much as I get him to do, and the money, what I get, I carry home to my mother. I cannot much English preaching, or I could tell mine story more goot. Bully for you, Dutchie, you're a trump. What is one trump? asked the boy, with a puzzled expression. It is a good feller. This explanation seemed to reconcile Dutchie to being called a trump, and he lay back on the bed with an expression of satisfaction. Now, Ben, tell us your story. It was Ben, the luggage boy, who was addressed. The question embarrassed him, for he preferred to keep his story secret. He hoped ere long to leave his present haunts and associates, and he did not care to give the latter a clue by which they might trace him in his new character and position. Yet he had no good reason to assign for silence. He was considering what sort of a story he could manufacture that would pass muster when he was relieved from further consideration by an unexpected occurrence. It appears that a boy had applied for admission to the rendezvous, 
but on account of his unpopular character, had been refused. This naturally incensed him, and he determined to betray the boys to the policeman on the beat. The sight that greeted Ben as he looked towards the entrance was the face of the policeman peering into the apartment. He uttered a half-exclamation which attracted the general attention. Instantly, all was excitement. The cop! The cop! passed from mouth to mouth. The officer saw that the odds were against him, and he must summon help. He went up the ladder, therefore, and went in search of assistance. The boys scrambled up after him. Some were caught and ultimately sentenced to the island on a charge of stealing the articles which were found. But the others escaped. Among these was Ben, who was lucky enough to glide off in the darkness. He took the little German boy under his protection and managed to get him safely away also. In this case, the ends of justice were not interfered with, as neither of the two had been guilty of dishonesty, and anything else rendering them amenable to the law. Well, Dutchie, we're safe, said Ben, when they had got some blocks away from the wharf. How do you feel? I lose my breath, said the little boy, panting with the effort he had made. That's better than losing your liberty, said Ben. You'll get your breath back again. Now we must look about and see where we can sleep. I wonder if Jim Bagley's took. Just then, a boy came running up. Why, it's Ben and Dutchie, he said. Jerry, is it you? I'm glad you're safe. The cop got a grip of me, but I left my jacket in his hands. He can carry that to the station house if he wants to. Jerry's appearance corresponded to his statement, his jacket being gone, leaving a dilapidated vest and ragged shirt alone to protect the upper part of his body. He shivered with the cold, for it was now November. Here, Jerry, said Ben, just take my vest and put over yours. I'll button up my coat. If I was as fat as Dutchy, I wouldn't mind the cold, said Jerry. The three boys finally found an old wagon in which all three huddled up together, by this means keeping warmer than they otherwise could. Being turned out of their beds into the street might have been considered a hardship by boys differently reared, but it was not enough to disturb the philosophy of our young vagrants. Chapter 24. Ben Transformed. Ben worked away steadily at his double occupation, saving money as well as he could, but he met with no more profitable adventures. His earnings were gradual. Some weeks had laid by as much as a dollar and a half or even two dollars, but other weeks he barely reached a dollar. So the end of March came before he was able to carry out the object which he had in view. One morning about this time, Ben carefully counted up his deposits and found they amounted to $50.37. It was a joyful moment, which he had long looked forward to. He had been tempted to rest satisfied with 40 when he had reached that sum, but he resisted the temptation. I ain't going to do things by halves, he said to himself. I can't do it for less than $50. I must wait a while. But the moment had arrived when he could accomplish his purpose. As Ben looked down at his ragged attire, which was in a considerably worse condition than when he was first presented to the reader, he felt that it was high time he got a new suit. The first thing to be done was to get his money. He made his way to the savings bank and presented himself at the counter. I want all of my money, he said. I hope you're not going to spend it all, said the bank officer, who by this time had come to feel acquainted with Ben from his frequent calls to make deposits. I'm going to buy some new clothes, said Ben. Don't I look as if I needed some? Yes, you are rather out at elbows, I must admit, but new clothes won't cost all the money you have in the bank. I'm going home to my friend, said Ben, after I've got dressed decently. That's a good resolution, my boy. I hope you'll stick to it. It's what I've been working for for a long time, said Ben. He filled out the order for the money, and it was delivered to him. The next thing was to buy a new suit of clothes. Usually, Ben had procured his outfit in Chatham Street, but he soared higher now. 
He made his way to a large, ready-made clothing warehouse on Broadway and entered. The main apartment was spacious. The counters were heaped with articles of dress, and numerous clerks were ready to wait upon customers. Well, what's wanted? asked one, glancing superciliously at the ragged boy entering. Have you got any clothes that will fit me? asked Ben. I guess you've lost your way, Johnny, haven't you? What makes you think so? asked Ben. This isn't Chatham Street. Thank you for the information, said Ben. I thought it was when I saw you here. There was a laugh at the clerk's expense among those who had heard the retort. What are you here for anyway? demanded the clerk with an air of insulted majesty. To buy some clothes, said Ben, but you needn't show them to me. I'll go to somebody else. Have you got any money? You'll know soon enough. He went to another part of the store and applied to a salesman whose appearance he liked better. After some hesitation, Ben made choice of a suit of substantial warm cloth, a dark mixed sack coat, vest of the same material, and a pair of pants of neat pattern. I won't trouble you to send them, said Ben, as my house is closed for the season. The bundle was made up and handed to him. The price of the entire suit was $20, which was a good price for those days. Ben took the bundle under his arm and went out. His purchases were not yet all made. He went next to a furnishing store and bought three shirts, three pairs of stockings, some collars and a necktie, finishing up with a pair of gloves. These cost him $8. A neat felt hat and a pair of shoes, which he procured elsewhere, completed his outfit. On counting up, Ben found that he had expended $36, leaving in his hands a balance of $14.37. Before putting on his new purchases, Ben felt that he must go through a process of purification. He went, therefore, to a barber's basement shop, with which baths were connected, and going down the steps, said to the barber's assistant, who happened to be alone at the time, I want a warm bath. Pay in advance, said the young man, surveying the ragged figure before him with some hesitation. All right, said Ben. How much is it? Twenty-five cents. Here it is, said Ben, producing the exact amount from his vest pocket. Such ragged customers were not usual, but there seemed to be no good excuse for refusing Ben, as he had the money to pay. In five minutes, the bath was declared to be ready, and Ben, entering the small room assigned to him, joyfully divested himself of the ragged garments, which he was never again to put on, and got into the tub. It probably will not excite surprise when I say that Ben stood in need of a bath. His street life had not been particularly favorable to cleanliness, nor had he been provided with such facilities for attending to his toilet as are usual in well-regulated families. However, he was quite aware of his deficiencies in this way, and spared neither pains nor soap to remedy them. It was a work of time, but finally he felt satisfied with the result of his efforts, and, after drying himself, proceeded to put on his new clothes. They proved to fit excellently. Indeed, they wrought such a change in our hero's appearance that he could hardly believe in his own identity when he stood before the glass and saw reflected the form of a well-dressed boy in place of the ragged figure which he saw on entering. The only thing that marred his good appearance was his hair, which had grown to undue length. He determined to have it cut before he left the barber's shop. He tied up the clothes he had taken off in the paper which had contained his new suit, and opening the door went out into the main room with the bundle under his arm. Meanwhile, the proprietor of the shop had returned. Who is taking a bath? he asked of his assistant. A ragged street boy, said the latter. What did you let him in for? He paid in advance. I don't care about such customers anyway, said the barber. Remember next time. All right. At this moment, Ben made his appearance, but that appearance was so much altered that the young man looked at him in astonishment. He looked thoroughly well-dressed and might have passed readily for the scion of a wealthy family. 
Were two bathrooms occupied? Asked the proprietor. No. I thought you said... I was never so surprised in my life, said the assistant. Did you get changed in the bath? He asked of Ben. Yes, said Ben. What made you wear such a ragged suit? I was in disguise, said Ben, but I've got tired of it and thrown it off. I think I'll have my hair cut. Take a seat, said the proprietor. I'll cut your hair myself. How will you have it cut? I want to be in the fashion, said Ben. Make it look as well as you can. He took his seat and the task commenced. The barber was skillful in his art and he saw at once what style would become Ben best. He exerted himself to the utmost, and when, at the end of half an hour, he withdrew the cloth from around our hero's neck, he had effected a change almost marvelous in Ben's appearance. I have already said that Ben was naturally good-looking, but even good looks need fair play, and rags and neglect are apt to obscure the gifts of nature. So Ben had never looked his best till now. But when his hair was cut and arranged, and he looked in the mirror to observe the effect, he was himself surprised. It was some like the change that transformed Cinderella into a princess. I shan't be ashamed to tell my cousin who I am now, he said. End of section 12. Recording by Tori Falder.